Uh, man, I sure hope you're doing well. You all look great. Uh, let's have a word of prayer. We'll get started. Jesus, thank you so much for the beauty of this place, the beauty of these people. And man, Lord, how exciting it is to see uh, Color of the Concrete and um, watch the kids start to own that place. And over the next few months, uh, we'll all have an opportunity to own that place. Uh, we ask your hand to continue to be on that project as the building continues to go up. And we ask for safety. We ask that even through this whole process and the church's attitude that, man, could people see this building even going up and think, man, I, I, need, I belong there. I need to be there. Uh, and may people come to a saving knowledge of who you are through that. I pray in the next few moments that um, you would just very simply make us more like you. Um, all of us have an area of our lives that we think, man, I could get some Jesus in that area. That'd be really good. And especially today, Lord, this is a tough word to hear. And, and I just want to be more like you. And I pray that for all of my friends, all those who are watching online right now, just pray that you'd, you'd help us to be more like you. So prepare our hearts. And when I say that, to everybody who's listening to the sound of my voice, that's an action you take. You have to ask God to prepare your heart for what he might want to say. And for me, that often involves getting rid of all the busyness that's part of my life. Sometimes it involves getting out of the analytical mood or the critical mood and just getting into the receptive. And so, Lord, whatever it is you have for me, just kind of make that your prayer. Uh, that's what I want in the next few moments. Whatever it is you have for me, in your name, amen. Uh, so listen, it's rainy, we're going to get thunder showers, and from what I understand from the people that track radar, it's going to get worse, and so we're going to have some moments uh, maybe where it might be tough for us to hear, so I thought we should sort of brighten things up, and uh, here's what I want to do. I would like to play some music trivia with you, and so uh, just really just one song, and, uh, and I want to kind of see if you can guess what the song is, it's kind of the way I'm going to do it, so I thought I would hum it. Nope, just kidding, not going to do that, I'm not going to do that, but here's, here, let me give you some things about this song. This song was the best R&B song pause. If you don't know what R&B is, stop playing. You're not in anymore. You're out. You're out. Okay. So best R&B song, best rap solo performance, and the first rap song, ready, nominated for record of the year in 1991 to the 33rd Grammys. So first rap song, 1991. Turn your neighbor, tell him the name of the song. Go ahead. Give him a whirl. Okay. Obviously I can see we're all probably still in the dark, so let me keep going. Let me see if I can help you a little bit. Uh, best rap video, best dance video, a 1990 MTV, back then MTV actually showed me music videos, uh, award. It peaked at number one on Billboard Hot R&B Hip Hop Singles and Tracks. If that still doesn't get it, let me just say this, it changed the way pants were viewed forever. Turn your neighbor, tell your neighbor... If you still don't get it, it involved a combination where a man by the name, who was named after a tool, didn't say he was a tool, I said he was named after a tool, was given permission from Rick James, a la la super freak for all you fans, to use the same lick. Tell your neighbor the name of the song and let's hear it just for a moment. <laughs> got it? Can't touch this. Come on, you know you want to just a little bit, right? Come on. Yeah, I know. I hurt myself. But keep going. Can we turn it up at all? That's kind of... Oh, yeah. He said, I can turn it up, Tom. Wake the neighbor. All right, all right. Let's cut that out. Nothing at all to do with the message. But wasn't that fun? Wasn't that a great time? That's just exciting. 
See, here's the thing. We all have these perceptions of Jesus. Actually, it has something to do with the message. I'm going to bring it back here in a minute. We have these perceptions of, of Jesus. And some people say he's kind of this good teacher. Some people say he was a prophet. Some people say, you know, he was a, a, a weird guy. Some people think he was a lunatic. Some people think, uh, when they think of Jesus, they think of like King Arthur or maybe Dumbledore. You know, it's kind of like that must be the Jesus figure. Some people think it's Jesus is Savior and Lord. Um, some people think Jesus was a salesman. And so his whole plan was to come to the earth and sort of sell this thing to everybody and everybody could buy it. And churches really are a way for people to make money on, on Jesus' back. And, and, and to be honest with you, I get that. I understand. But my only pushback on the whole idea of Jesus being a salesman is simply this. If he was a salesman, he was the worst salesman of all time. See, see if you agree with what I'm saying. When you sell something to someone, it's for personal benefit and personal profit. Do you agree with that? If I'm trying to sell you something and it's not for personal benefit or personal profit, I'm not going to be in business very long. <laughs> okay? So Jesus didn't come to do that. When you give something away, especially something for free, that's for someone else's benefit and profit. So here's where we are. The real Jesus doesn't want something from us. He actually wants something for us. That's the distinction of the real Jesus so far that we've learned. The real Jesus wants to give something away. And he wants to give away something that we all need, something you can't purchase, something you can't manage, something you don't already have. The real Jesus has something only he can give. And this is the other thing. Only we as individuals, I don't know if I said that right, I as individual, only I can accept, right? So Jesus has this free gift he wants to give us, but I can't accept it for you. You can't accept it for me. I have to accept it. Now, what that does, at least in me, just getting honest with you, is it creates this tension in me because I don't like any sense, just being honest, that I need anything from anyone. It's the heart of a pastor. I can't tell you. I mean, that's just kind of what we have. I'm not sure I like that. I like to think I control everything. I can control everything I need. I control everything that other people need. I like to think I'm in control. I know it's not real, but I like to think it. It just makes me feel better. I like to believe I'm actually the master of my own universe. I know I'm not supposed to say that in church, and yes, I know the right answer, but I'm trying to be real with you. <laughs> I do like to believe that way. I master my own universe. But Jesus came, and Jesus came out of this scene, the real Jesus. He comes in and saying something that I've got something all of you need, and only you can provide, and that's an immediate turnoff for me. The real Jesus tells this parable one day. That address the very tension that I've just created in our hearts and minds. Parables are this tool that frequently Jesus would use where he would tell us, take something familiar to tell us something we don't know anything about. And he would do that. So I want to share with you the first verse, and then you can see what the people specifically Jesus was addressing in this parable and see if we can begin to tie some of this. This is his target audience. Luke chapter 18, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. So you know who he's talking to. To be righteous, just for clarity, if you look it up on you know, Google or whatever, it means always doing the right thing. Without fail, 100% of the time. And it's not what it means in church world. It just means that's what everybody else goes by. Always doing the right thing, 100% of the time. And then when you add, they were confident in their own righteousness. We, we would call that self-righteousness. They were confident in their self-righteousness. It kind of produces this irony. What it says is, I make myself do the right thing without fail 
100% of the time. What, what he's addressing are the people that like to manage their own universe, including their own righteousness. See, I'm perfect. Obviously, you're not. And I'm better than you because I have made myself perfect. That's who Jesus is addressing. In this parable, the real Jesus is actually targeting self-righteous people. Now, the thing about self-righteousness that we have to embrace is that it always has this horizontal expression. Nobody looks at God and says, wow, I'm more righteous than you. But many look at each other and say, wow, I'm glad I don't suck like you. I'm glad I don't stink like you. I'm better than you. We make ourselves righteous by being better than other people, and then we can perceive ourselves as being better. And so, in a marvelous feat of communication expertise, the theme song of self-righteous people is, can't touch this, you got it. Okay, about like 8.30. So, just to remind you, I thought I would just give a little to you. I'm just going to free flow. Yo, I told you, you can't touch this. Why are you standing there, man? So anyway, you get the idea. You can listen to yourself. But basically, in Tom's word, it'd be, I'm better than you, nanny, nanny, boo-boo. That's kind of the whole deal of self-righteousness. That's kind of the deal. You can't touch this. Now, perhaps there's this collective sigh across the Alive community today because nobody out there thought, wow, I've come in to hear about self-righteousness. I really need this. We think we can finally sit this one out. Finally, I'll get to enjoy the coffee, kind of like listen to the music, and then leave, and I'm going to be happy. This message has nothing to do with me. But then we think, but I sure am glad so-and-so's here. (laughs) This has nothing to do with me, but I know someone I'm going to send this video to. I'm going to send this YouTube video to somebody. Or like you're looking around your small group, eyes up here, eyes up here, and you think, oh my goodness, I'm so glad you know, goody, goody two-shoes over there is here, you know, whatever you call them behind their back. And, and, and I get that. But the funny thing about self-righteousness is this. I've, I've been like a professional Christian for years. I've been playing in the big league for a long time. And um, I have never had someone come to me and say, Tom, I'm self-righteous. Never. And I've hung around so many Christians, it'd make you sick. I mean, I'm always around them all the time. And I've never had one come up and say, hey, Tom, I'm so self-righteous. To be honest, I think, and see if I can convince you in the next few moments, I think the default of the human condition is actually self-righteousness. You push back on it, we'll see where we go. But to be honest, I think that's there because I can surely see it in myself at times. And it goes like this, I'm right and you're wrong. That's kind of the way it goes. And to believe I may have problems, that's true. But at least I'm not as bad as that person and their problems. You ever struggle with any of these? Please tell me yes. See, Jesus tells this parable to address the issue. He says, two men come to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Jesus, the real Jesus, is telling a parable that he wanted alive to hear however many years later because there's something he wants us to learn. Pharisees, they're the religious police. Oftentimes, when we read about the religious police in Scripture, we think, oh, those nasty people. But really, most of the time, anything that is organized religion, that's what the Pharisees would kind of point to. Unfortunately, that's just something we all got to own. 
They were the religious elite. They were experts in the field. In fact, the Pharisees' t-shirts had a song on it that said, okay, four of us have caught it. I can't touch this. So now (laughs) the other guy, he's a tax collector. The other dude's a tax collector. And their jobs required them to turn their backs on family and faith and culture and heritage and God and all that. They were the ultimate sellouts and extortionists in their culture. And they were regarded with contempt by everybody. Both the tax collector and the Pharisees come to the temple for the same reason. They want to pray. They're coming to the temple. Same place, same reason. In the story told by the real Jesus, he talks about the Pharisee first. And this is how it goes. The Pharisee, Jesus said, stood up and prayed about... God, this is almost comical. I have to believe Jesus was teaching this somewhat tongue-in-cheek. I thank you that I am not like other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, Gamecock fans, or even, <laughs> even, even like this tax collector. Don't miss this. The dude's praying in church. Lord, thank you I'm not like these other people. Well, even him, for example, you know, thank you, I'm not like him. That did right there. And he points to him, even this tax collector. And then he says, to prove how, like, righteous he is, I, pass twice, I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. Did you notice that the Pharisee's prayer doesn't express any need? Read it, I mean, for yourself. Don't take my word for it. He doesn't say, I need anything from you, God. Why? I manage my own universe. I control everything around me. I have a list that shows how righteous I am. The Pharisee goes right into prayer, and it's all about horizontal comparisons. I am better because of what I do and do not do. I'm better because at least, even though I did this, I have never done that. Does that sound familiar? It really should, because all of us have uttered or thought the same ideas. In fact, even if you don't believe you've thought the same idea. I'm not quite as bad a person as the rest of the population because I've done all those things, but I never did that. Let me show you how deep this spiritual arrogance is for the Pharisee. See this part that Jesus includes in his story, I fast twice a week? Now, what's really interesting about this is if you go to Old Testament law, which the Pharisees are the experts in, you only had to fast once a year, and it was on the Day of Atonement. That was the only day you've had to fast. But the Pharisees had adopted this culture where they manage their own universe, they make themselves super-righteous, hyper-righteous, And so they fast twice a week. Guess what days they fasted on? Monday and Thursday. Say, why Monday and Thursday? Well, in that culture, think back, oh, many, many, you know, there's no, it was a a good place. There was no Walmart. (laughs) There's there's, There's no superstore. So there's a market that opened up. And when the market opened up, everybody came into the town, into the villages to, to get what they needed, their supplies. And those days were Mondays and Thursdays. And so what the Pharisees were doing is they would fast at the time when the most people in town saw it. And they would fast at a time when they would get the most attention for fasting. And they weren't good fasters. So like when they fast, they, like, like they would like put like makeup on. They like lean over. I'm sorry, I've just been fasting for <laughs> two hours. I mean, it's absolutely exhausting. I don't know if I can take it. And that's what they would do. Jesus, it was so rampant. Jesus addressed this on the Sermon on the Mount. If you've ever remember hearing this verse, he says, when you fast, don't look somber like the hypocrites do. They disfigure their faces and they show men that they're fasting. That word hypocrite, it's actually the most common used word to describe Pharisees that Jesus used. It's a, it's a, it's a word from the drama field that literally means somebody who wears a mask. It's someone who assumes a character. 
That's what that word hypocrite means. And when Jesus is talking about the Pharisees, the people who are making themselves righteous, he says, they're people that are assuming a character, but they're not real. Aren't you glad you're not a hypocrite? Hold on a minute. Just, just from here, if you're, if you're here just kind of checking things out, this would be a good time to sort of go on Facebook or something. But it, for those of us that are dialing in, this is where it's going to get, like, this is tough where we're headed to now. But let me ask you this. Do you ever find yourself taking comfort by comparing yourself to other people and realizing you're not that bad? How about this? Do you ever find yourself in a situation where your beliefs don't match your behaviors? Oh, this is the right thing to do. This is the way you treat people, but I'm just not doing it. You ever, you ever portray yourself as something you're really not? How about this? Do you ever pretend everything's okay? But it's not. It hasn't been okay for a long time. How about this one? Do you ever pretend your own sin doesn't stink? but you think everybody else's does? If you said yes to any of those questions, and I, by the way, said yes to just about every, of them, every one of them, then you're struggling with this too. It's not just me. It's also you. See, being, being a Pharisee is a tough role. Imagine having to get up every morning knowing you had to be perfect all the time, and you could never be real in any environment you're in. You can never let your guard down. Because your life at that point then becomes all about mask management. And you spend the, your entirety, you spend your entire life using all your energies trying to build a strong facade. And you become so good at it that you become convinced that the facade is actually real. And the mask becomes part of you. This is the I never, I never thought about doing, I never would crowd, which doesn't exist. According to Scripture, when Paul said, if it wasn't for God's grace, I would have done that. You remember the passage, I don't know if you all were here last week, but last week we looked at this passage where Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners, and he makes this comment. Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. He's talking to Pharisees. Then he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. When the Pharisees heard these words, they had so bought into their own masks. This is what self-righteous people do. When the Pharisees heard these words, they you know, uninvited themselves to the party. Oh, you're for sick people? That's not me. <laughs> That's not who I am. I don't need Jesus, but you do. I don't need to be connected to any body of believers. I don't need a holy book. I don't need worship. I don't need small group. I don't need any of that stuff. But you probably do. Your life's a mess. Self-righteousness is the sin and the sickness of believing I'm not sinful or sick. How you doing on it? Come on. How you doing on it? Because the truth be told... Every one of us are sick. Let me, get, let me get a little more uncomfortable just 
We'll see what happens. And you, you know when this really bothers me? This whole sin and sickness stuff? It's when someone talks to me about the sin of another person or the struggle that someone else is going through, not in a concerned way, but a condemning or damning way. That drives me bonkers. Because all I can see when I'm having those conversations is this. I don't know if you know this, Pastor Tom, but so-and-so over there. Yep, they're a Gamecock fan. (laughs) Pretty sure they're going to hell if they die today. Not that I really care. I just wanted you to see my mask. It happens a great deal in my world. The only reason I told a joke is because it makes me so uncomfortable to tell you the real thing. Someone starts coming to church, and when they do, and I've seen this. I've been here 15 years and 20-some-odd years before that. But they start coming to church, and their lives are a mess. Marriage is a wreck. Sexual identity is lost. Pile of regret and hurt and shame. Addictions are rampant. Kids are acting out. There's this mask wearing, a lot of it. But then Jesus overwhelms them. And they find themselves broken in his grace. Broken in his love and forgiveness and restoration. Tears and brokenness abound. And it's a beautiful season to walk through someone's life with. But then something happens to those of us who are Christian people. Including your pastor. It's like we have these short memories when it comes to our screw-ups. And we pour out a healthy dose of grace to ourselves, but we have little to no tolerance when someone else in the body may be struggling. And I've actually had these kinds of words. Hey, Tom, I know I've slept around before I became a Christian, but I never slept with them. That's just, that's just sick. I know what I used to do way back in the day, but I think it's kind of what all of us did. But, you know, nowadays it's just perverted. No, it's all sin, and it all breaks the heart of God. That's why Jesus told the story, the real Jesus. And our judgment and accusation towards someone who sins, I think it breaks God's heart. I think it also awakens God's anger. I do. I know I'm not supposed to talk about that, God being angry in PC culture, but I think I see it in Scripture I think I see the real Jesus throwing down people that were pharisaical. I know we're supposed to make it all tame in here, but don't forget who Jesus called these people. Y'all look so good outside in your Sunday best, but you smell like death inside. You remember? How about when he he made the whip (laughs) and beat the money changers? That was sad. Beat the money changers out of the temple... Christians come in the doors of the church and it seems like within a short time forget our struggle and we embrace the mask that we would never. Listen, there is no holier than thou in the, in the kingdom of the real Jesus. That's some cancer you picked up in your belief system. I picked up in my belief system. There is no holier than thou. Certainly do not look at this platform and say there's a dude up there holier than thou because that is not real. It is not real. And I, you know what? I don't want that baggage from you. You're a screw-up. And so am I. Aren't you glad you came to church? (laughs) And it's a great place to be. (laughs) 
But Jesus, he knows that about me. And he knows it about you. And so Jesus came into the scene and said, I can give you something you can't give yourself. It's what you need. Restoring us to beauty and grace. Tim Keller says it so, so, be- so much better than I did. He says, you are more sinful than you could ever dare imagine, and you are more loved and accepted than you can ever dare to hope at the same time. You want an identity, Christian? There you go. Churches sometimes become this fellowship that permits nobody to be a sinner. So what happens is the church becomes this place where everybody wears a mask and walk around with each other. We dare not be sinners here because it's not safe. If they find out I'm a sinner, they're going to kick me out. And we wear the mask that pretends you weren't who you were before you were married. Or you weren't who you were last night in your private computer behavior. Or you weren't who you were when you struggled with an addiction. Or in your thought life and what you thought about and what you imagined doing. Or in your lack of forgiveness or in the way you look down on other people. It pretends you're not who you are. And many Christians are unthinkably horrified when an actual bona fide real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. And they come running to the preacher. Oh, preacher, preacher, we got a sinner here. Oh, for heaven's sakes, bar the doors. <laughs> My comments is always the same. No, we don't have a sinner. That's all we got here. But some of them have been redeemed by Jesus. We all have this little bit of Pharisee in us. And I think we all wrestle with being self-righteous. I think we do. I wouldn't presume, I, I hope, to say how this manifests in your life. Perhaps most of what you've heard is how it manifests in mine. There's another dude in the story. This dude's a tax collector in Jesus's, the real Jesus' parable. He says, Pharisee did all that. The fa- tax collector, he stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The tax collector immediately pleads for mercy. There's no comparison with other people. His perspective is he's a Hall of Fame sinner. In fact, the word in the Greek, that word that they translated A here, it actually is an article. It can mean the. So the, the, the dude may be saying, Lord, I'm actually the sinner, like Hall of Fame sinner. That's me. I'm the one. And he's a tax collector. He's the most frowned upon member of their society. I am the sinner. It's interesting that both of the people in the story suffered from arrogance and even pride. The Pharisee thought he was most self-righteous. The tax collector thought he was the most sinful of all people that ever walked the earth. Neither person's right. Jesus has never been shocked by sin, but he certainly has been broken for it. Tax collector understands he has a need, so his job description is to be a sellout and a traitor and a lover of money and a betrayer of family. He has no horizontal concerns at all because he knows he is the worst one in the room, according to his perspective. He's only got a vertical concern. God, will you hear my prayers? God, will you give me mercy? And then the real Jesus speaks. He says, I tell you, that this man, talking about the tax collector, rather than the other Pharisee, went home justified, come back to it, 
before God. Everybody who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. That justified is actually a legal term first. It's not a religious term. And the scriptures took it over. In legal terms, what that word actually means is you've been declared righteous by a judge. In Christian terms, I always say it like this. It's just as if. So they went home just as if they had never. This is a rock-solid conclusion. Yep, I'm a broken man, but because of Jesus, he gave me what I can't give myself, and it's just as if I've never sinned in this moment. You see, I'm concerned that the church is forming this identity And it goes something like this. See if you agree. I think when we come to the church, especially if we've kind of lived a life that has piled up a lot of shame and hurt, guilt, whatever. And we come to the church, and this is the posture. We get to the church, and we find ourselves kind of on our knees before the Father. Oh, man, Jesus, I'm the ultimate screw-up here. I've got a pile of shame and a pile of hurt and a pile of regret in my life. I mean, I've done this, 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 and this. And now I'm married and I got kids. Or now I'm an adult and I got to do something with all the shame and guilt I've piled up. And so we say, Lord, if you at all give me mercy, that'd be a really good thing. And then what happens is God honors that brokenness in us, right? Right? And so the brokenness, He meets us there. And so all of a sudden, we find ourselves being redeemed, just as if we have never. And then, we step away from the brokenness at the foot of the cross. And instead, think we join Jesus' team. (laughs) And we become the judge of all mankind. But instead, I wonder if the role of the church isn't to keep our brokenness before the cross. So that... When a sinner sneaks in, they belong. They belong here. Yeah, I, I did that. No, I don't tell anyone. I don't tell my kids. But yeah, I did that. He come over here. Let me tell you about what Jesus has done for me. And he can heal you too, forgive you too. Oh, that's awesome. Jesus, he healed you good. Stand up. No, no, no. You sit right back down. This is where the church is. We're broken people at the foot of the cross, redeemed by Jesus Christ. So if I'm going to be redeemed by Jesus Christ, I'm never going to leave before the cross. I don't know. Maybe that's too poetic. Let me ask you a couple questions. Do you believe you have a need? You ever seen this in your life? You understand yet you can't fix that need? Are you really trying to fix it yourself? You still trying to do that? One more relationship, one more income bracket, one more professional success, one more time my kids are perfect and better than anybody else's. I can fix this. Let me ask you this. When's the last time you said to yourself, you know what, it's okay if I'm an absolute mess. I like you people that are a mess. Because it makes me feel like I'm normal. 
You people that aren't a mess, you make me uncomfortable. You look so good. But I don't buy it. And you don't either. You all understand that Jesus, the whole God thing, he can see behind the mask, right? You know he's not impressed with this one, right? Hey, Jesus, it's me, perfect child. And you know that even when Jesus sees behind your mask, he still, he actually loves you? See, self-righteousness is this flimsy deception that I'm afraid the church is embracing, and nobody buys it, and nobody accepts it, and I think we all struggle with it at some level. What do you mean, Tom, struggle? All right. I can lose my temper, and I can justify it, because I'm right. In other words, yes, kids, I know I flew off the handle at you, but I'm right. And you're a jerk, Tom. Our house, we have this phrase, the hardest thing in the world is to be right and not hurt somebody with it. I find that I can be cold and distant from the people I love the most. Not you people, because with you people, I give you this on Sunday morning, right? I'm not careful. How you doing? I'm great. Good. How you doing? And that's all fine. I get that. That's part of normal. But then to go home and to be cold and distant from Lise and Rachel and Sarah and Thomas. Um, and I justify it. Because this is what I say. Well, Tom, you're exhausted. You got a lot of pressure on you. So you really don't have to feed into them or give them the good part of you. I can watch a movie with nothing redemptive in it. What are you talking about? I'm talking about like when they kill everybody. That's my favorite kind of movie. I don't know why. Just judge me. I don't care. That's what I love. And I justify it. Because at least I'm not watching porn like some of you. I have a gift of sarcasm. But I don't think it came from God. But I do have a gift. I love it. And I can use it at the wrong time. Hey, but at least I'm not cussing out my kids and my spouse like some of you. Do I have to go further or have I gone far enough that you kind of can go with me? Because I don't really want to go any further. If you kind of can relate a bit to what I'm saying, I got an idea. Write this down. Let's stop. Let's just stop this crap. Just stop it. Let's stop pretending we did it on our own because nobody buys that. I don't buy it. And let's throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus in brokenness and then invite other broken, nasty people to join us there, the fellowship of the broken, nasty people who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ.
Grace requires all of us to admit that nobody was ever okay. And that's what the real Jesus is trying to say in this parable. So I want to share with you a, something Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote. And it's, it's kind of lengthy. It's like four slides, I think. But if you would, just kind of focus, if you would, just dial in. Because I think he summarizes everything I've been trying to say, but does it so well. So he says, it is the grace of the gospel which is so hard for the pious people to understand. That it confronts us with the truth and says, Yep, Tom, you're a sinner, a great desperate sinner. Now come as the sinner that you are to God who loves you. Is that not beautiful? He wants you as you are, not this junk. He doesn't want anything from you, a sacrifice, a work. He wants you, you alone. And you don't have to scrub up with Irish spring before he accepts you. He wants you. I'm adding because he doesn't know what Irish spring is. But God has come to you to save the sinner. Be glad. You all stink at being glad. Be glad. Be happy. This message is liberation through truth. You can hide nothing from God. You can hide nothing from God. The mask, he writes, that you wear before the people, will do you no good before God. He wants to see you as you are. He wants to be gracious to you. You don't have to go on lying to yourself and lying to other people as if you were without sin. You can dare to be a sinner. Thank God for that. He loves the sinner and he hates the sin. Well, thank the Lord this is over. <laughs> I would like to throw a couple of application things away from you, and each one of them get a little heavier. Um, got an accountability partner, and I pulled him into my application process, so we'll see how this goes this week. But here's the first. Some of you say, you know what, Tom? I, I hear what you're saying. So here's what I would challenge you to do. Some of you, how about you just read this passage twice more this week? Just make that your goal. Read it twice more. Maybe read it as a family. I don't know, but just read it. Look at us. Luke 18, 9 through 14. Form your own message out of it. And if you want to go another step further, make a list this week. I try to justify myself when... I try to make it look as if I have never, when, and make a list so you know. So you know. And for those of you that really want to go deep with this, which I plan on doing this week, show someone your list. Man, honey, if they're not your spouse, don't call them honey because I'll just be creepy. But if they are your spouse, man, honey, I... I wrote this list this week and I got some things that God needs to do in me still. I want to get better. I want to be better. I want God to do a greater work. So if you would, just take a moment. Pick one. This is what I'm going to do this week. Pick one. And if you're with me on this, I say we trash these things. Let's get rid of them. Not impressive and they're no fun. Let's be real. I'll take you with your warts. You take me with mine. 
and we'll go to the foot of the cross together. Jesus, thank you for these good people. This is a tough message, Lord. I get it. I do. Lord, I'm thankful that this congregation, this group of people, this community, really is seeking genuine authenticity. Lord, I hope we'll continue to be a place where the doormat is put out that says sinners are welcome here. I'm very thankful, Lord, for the redemptive work you've done in my heart and life. I'm thankful for the things you've done is removed my sin and guilt and shame. I'm thankful. Lord, as soon as I get up from kneeling before a cross, I start owning the things you did on my behalf. And I don't want to be that guy. We don't want to be that people. And this certainly doesn't want to be that church. So I pray you continue to help us balance grace and truth. I pray you continue to help us find our identity as broken women and broken men who have met a redeemer and a restorer in Jesus Christ. And may masks be peeled off and genuine love be be rampant like a beautiful disease spreading in this body. Love and grace, acceptance and truth. In your name. Amen.